This is a sermon podcast of the First Baptist Church of Boulogne in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcboulogne.org. All right. Well, tonight it really isn't long, but but we we are going to do things a little bit differently because chapter 9 of Esther is kind of a different chapter and because it's a different chapter um uh, it's it's requiring a little bit of a different approach so i'm going to i'm going to give you the rule tonight uh first and foremost like i have normally done um you know the 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 title of this is uh um you know in our study of of Esther learning to trust the unseen hand of god you know and we've been learning these rules I've been giving to you that are kind of drawn from the way God is working with Esther and working with Israel in a in a time period, but particularly in a record of their history where the name of God is never mentioned. And tonight, here's the rule. In times of defense, remember mercy. Now, this that's kind of an odd rule considering everything that we've been looking at before. But tonight we're talking about warfare. In, in all the other chapters, we've been talking about, you know, you know, injustice, and we've been talking about so many other things, but tonight, they're actually on the offense. And so, because they are on an offense, and, and we have to understand that according to the text, their offense is based upon defense, because remember, there was an edict that had to be changed or added to last week, and the edict was, okay, Jews... You are, you now have the right to defend yourselves. Well, that's what tonight's all about. Now we're going to see this in action. So in times of defense, meaning in times that, that you come under attack, whether justly or unjustly, no matter what happens and and it, it requires you to kind of defend where you are, remember mercy. Bible says, blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. I got to have a conversation tomorrow with somebody that I've been praying all week because I've got I'm going to have to give to them a measure of mercy. And right now I'm trying to figure out how much. So, why is this so important? It's important because. Number one, we're going to be found to have to defend ourselves. I don't want to say on occasion. I don't know if it's that frequent. But you know what? A, a more pressing time is on, the, on, is on the political spectrum. What about a country defending or a people group defending themselves? And so we're going to kind of begin tonight with looking at defense from a military slash country or national perspective. And then towards the end, as we make some specific application, we're going to bring it back down to personal application. All right. So I want you to consider the words of the last stanza of the Star Spangled Banner. How many of you know the last stanza of the Star Spangled Banner? How many of you knew there's more than one verse to the Star Spangled Banner? There's like four of them. <laughs> but we never sing. We never sing all four of them because it's time to sit down and, you know, and play the ball game or whatever. 
Listen to the last verse. Oh, thus be it ever when free men shall stand, and between their loved home and war's desolation. Blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven-rescued land praise the power, and that's a capital P, praise the power that hath made and preserved us a nation. Now listen to this. Then conquer we must when our cause it is just, and thus be our motto, in God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave. I got a question for you, and I do want some feedback, but remember, be kind. I'm just posing the question. Is it biblically right for a country to invoke the name of God to go to war? Okay. All right. We are a geopolitical nation, meaning we are not a people group. So the thing that really defers us from Israel, that was an ethnic nation. United States is not an ethnic nation. So let's, let's kind of put it in context of where we are. Is it right for a geopolitical, non-ethnic based nation to invoke the name of God to go to war? Okay, I saw a hand raised over here. Yes. Okay. Well, like, think, think of the Star Spangled Banner. Then conquer we must if the cause it is just. Now, I think just that line in and of itself, I think the author says a whole lot. He's putting a big limitation on why we would even want to go to war. But the second line is, but this is going to be our motto, in God we will trust. Okay? <clears throat> Yeah, and, 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 that's, and that's why that question may not ever be fully and suitably answered when it's brought up. Uh, and that's the beauty of the study of ethics, by the way. When you take an ethics class, uh, in a, particularly in a Christian institution, uh, if your professor is good, he'll, he'll make you ask more questions than what you'll actually answer. Okay, yes, sir. Okay, well, I mean, that's... You know, yeah. Well, that's, you know, um, the, the author says, you know, when, when the cause is just, it almost makes it sound like when we know that the cause is a just one. Let's just say, let's just assume, let's just kind of assume that the, um, that the emancipation of a people that are oppressed is a just reason to go to war. Let's just say that, Let's just say that just let's just say that we knew automatically that uh, the the Jewish people were being slaughtered by the millions, and let's say that's the only reason why we went to war. We could probably safely say that's a just reason to go to war. It's because it's redemption of the people. Okay, but that's gonna that is that is always going to be eternally the, a, a question to be asked. But here's another question. Let's just, let's just assume now that because we're all super patriots and God is always on our side no matter what, 
and we know that that's not really the case. We are sinners just as much as anybody. There were two big nations that were fighting against one another in World War II, and both of them were saying, God is on our side. We were saying it. You know who else was saying it? Germany. Gott mit uns. God with us. And you know why we know that? Because it was emblazoned on their military paraphernalia. Gott mit uns. God with us. So who was, was uh, which side was God on? <laughs> okay. So I'm throwing this out here to stir the pot to let you know that you can get into a very quick quandary if you use and invoke the name of God for geopolitical purposes. Maybe to the point where we may find ourselves in sin just by doing so. That's why in our political zeal and in our patriotism, which it is okay to good, have a good measure, we must be careful even how we use religious symbols and attach it to our patriotism. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying we just got to be mindful. Here's why. If we want to bring God, we have to always remember we're not just bringing a name. We are bringing his entire character and all that he is. So if as a geopolitical nation, if we want to trust in God and we want to call on God just for morality purposes. Who says that we can draw the dividing line there? If we want the Old Testament moral God, shouldn't we have to take his sacrifices too? What I'm saying is, who are we to pick and choose what parts of the character of God to invoke into the political spectrum or our you know, nation's direction or what have you? There is a line and there has to be. The scriptures actually declare that there is a line. Between the way that God dealt exclusively with Israel and the way that he deals with us. Remember, he had a covenant, a specific covenant with Israel at one period of time in history. And the covenant changed. I, there's a term that I use. I, I believe in covenant theology. That's, in other words, I believe that God deals with humanity based on covenants. It actually started in the garden. There was an Adamic covenant. In other words, he made a covenant with Adam and Eve. Okay, remember the whole snake is going to strike you, but you're going to crush his head. Then he had a Noahic covenant. You remember the sign was a rainbow. I will never again flow the earth like I did. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> so Adamic, Noahic, you had a Mosaic covenant. That was the law. But see, and, and this is where I go back to that whole pick and choose. What was the law? Was it just the Ten Commandments? No. It was more than the Ten Commandments. He gave instructions on building the temple. He gave instructions on how to do all the sacrifices. So if we say we just want the morality of God or law of God, well, you better take all of it, right? Okay, if we want to be extreme. Okay, but you had the, you had the Mosaic law. Fast forward, now you have Christ. 
who ushers in a brand new covenant. And with the, with the entrance of Christ, you now have God dealing with humanity on a level playing field. We know that it's a level playing field. It's, a, it's an interesting level playing field. I'll just say it that much. Because when Paul outlined this, what I would call a, a, a good treatise of New Covenant theology in the book of Romans. You remember there was one whole section that he said, okay, all right, so you Gentiles, the gospel wasn't first for you. It was for my people. Why? Because that was his people to begin with. Okay, so, and I apologize, I am making this incredibly simple and trying to fast forward to get to Esther, so just bear with me. So, you know, it wasn't really for you, Gentile, but when you accept the Messiah, just like we want my kindred, Paul said, remember Paul even said, I believe it was Romans chapter 9, round about verse 2, he said, I would that I would die. I would give my life so that my fellow Jews would accept Christ. It was Romans chapter 9. It was around about that anyway. But he says, when you accept him, you become engrafted branches to the olive tree. So in other words, there is kind of that level playing field, meaning you're all one. Now, there is a little bit of a resurrection of God's covenant with Israel when we get to Revelation because we have the ceiling of 12,000 from each tribe. You know, it's 144,000, okay? Now, I would readily confess that that's more shrouded um, in, in its details than what we actually know. But that's where I, fa- I fall into the, the category of a covenant theology uh, that God deals with, with humanity based on covenants. This is important because Esther 9 is an instruction on warfare. So the lessons that we draw from this chapter, we automatically have to remember that God is dealing with his people. He is dealing only with the salvation of his people. Why? Because there's still a covenant and a promise that has to be fulfilled that there will be a Messiah. But for there to be a Messiah, there has to be a people and a nation for the Messiah to come from. Are y'all with me so far? So I've given you the warnings first. Just because we have God moving and working amongst a group of people, we do not have uh, uh, free access or free reign to invoke God's name in ways that may not be so wise for us. And I can assure you, it is, it is, it is not unpatriotic. It is not against America. And it's not disrespectful to our country or flag or whatever to ask ourselves, are we using the name of God appropriately when the time for war comes? Now, Alan, you mentioned something kind of interesting a while ago in that we saddled the authority <clears throat> of our governing authorities on some sort of divinity. Now, what I think you may be echoing is what Paul said in Romans 13, where he said that even the authorities, God created them. But, you know, he also used the word, they are ministers. Okay? So, um, that word, and that needs to be preached a lot (laughs) to those. I mean, they need to realize that. Meaning that there is, and, and this is why it gets deep. 
Meaning that, or should I say, is it better stated as a question, does that not mean that they will be held accountable because of them serving in a position that God says, I created that in the, in, in the first place, you see. Now you know why so many evangelicals are very concerned about the character and integrity of the people running for office. Because this was a, I mean, God-ordained government, you see. All right? Um, you can't exhaust this discussion, okay? But let's turn our attention to the Scriptures. And what I'm going to do, I went ahead to save us time. I wrote out um, an outline, okay? And you'll notice in this outline of the chapter that it's, it's repetitive, we begin in verse 1, the timing of the victory. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's commanded edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. Some of you may have a translation that says the tables were turned. Does anybody have a translation that says the tables were turned? There you go. Okay. What is interesting about that phrase, the tables were turned or the reverse occurred, it is passive in the Hebrew, meaning in a verb tense that's passive, it means somebody did it, but it wasn't us. That, that's how we know that God is behind all this. It, it happened, but it wasn't necessarily because of what humans did. It was a divine thing that occurred, Right? So you have the timing of the victory mentioned at the beginning of the chapter, but notice at the end, and I've, and I've correlated them with letters of the alphabet. So letter A, timing of the victory, but look at letter at the second A. The ending of the chapter is also a reminder of the timing of the victory. Go down to verse 17. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day of feasting and gladness. Okay? And verse 19, therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of, for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. That feast is called the Feast of Purim. And as a matter of fact, the Feast of Purim is about to happen. I'm going to talk about that in just a little bit. Okay? So the chapter is indexed beginning and end with a reminder of the timing of the victory. The second thing that happens is the extent of the victory. All right, now to save us time, you have in verses 2 through 5 and down again in verse 16, you have these verses that describe the extent and the range of the victory. In other words, Jews in every province and in every place in this empire, they were all gaining the victory. <clears throat> you have mentioned in letter C, there's a victory in Susa mentioned. And if you'll notice, there's an actual number affiliated in verse 6. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. We have another reminder of the victory in Susa. Chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa. 
But now look in verse 16. There was an additional 75,000 people that were killed. So you have this humongous day or so of battle where, you know, scores and scores of the Jews, uh, the, the enemy of the Jews were being killed. But notice the one thing that's not repeated And when you structure a paragraph this way, when theologians do this, what they'll say is this is kind of highlighting the the, the main point of the text. The petition for more opportunity. uh, Chapter 9, verse 11 through 13. Let's start there. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel were reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. That's the content of the chapter. Well, what do we draw from there? What, what, is, you know, what are the, the highlights, I guess, as it were? Let me first begin uh, <clears throat> uh, going past the, the, the mentioning of this passive act that the tables were turned. I mean, this was God. He was ordaining some things, okay? And, this, and that's maybe one of the reasons why we've got to be very careful in, in petitioning the name of God. Um, a country that is secular more than it is anything else. We are definitely not a Christian country anymore. But a nation that is secular, if you're going to invoke the name of God, well, does that mean you're going to listen to, to God and, and, and submit to his direction and leading? See, here you, you, we clearly have a chapter that talks about a battle that was not only instigated by the Lord because it was a passive action. The tables were turned. But notice how everything subsequently follows, and I use this term loosely, it follows the directive and the will of God in the way that it was executed. You see, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You see Mordecai being mentioned again in verse 4. He was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. This is a reminder back in or back to uh, 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 Esther chapter six and verse 13. You remember Haman's wife said, you know, dude, if you if this Mordecai is, you know, getting advantage over you, you can be sure, you know, his power is going to be known. Right. And we see this happening. What is interesting is that in verses um, 7, 8, 9, and 10, you have the mentioning by name of Haman's ten sons. Now, this is rare. We don't see this happen a lot in the scriptures. Now, history tells us that his sons, Haman's sons, were actually named after demons. Jewish scribes to this day, I'll call them scribes, the leader of a Jewish synagogue, during the Feast of Purim when they would read the book of Esther, it is required for him to read this portion of the text, these verses where his sons were mentioned, in one breath. 
because they were killed in one day. It's just one of those rituals that they observe. Going down to verse 11, we read a moment ago about this exchange between Xerxes and Esther. Now, as you read this and you read it again and you read it again and you read it again, it almost has a feeling that Xerxes himself is using his power to deliberately support the Jews and their defensive campaign out of a mixture of fear and respect. If you read that text just and just you know, just, just read it and, and not try to read into it, but just read it over and over. You get the sense that Xerxes, in other words, he's trying to take an initiative to make sure Esther is getting what she wants. And, and to me, it would make sense because he has been witness to what he thought was an attack on the queen herself by Haman. You remember during the feast? And all of the truth came out. You know, Mordecai, held off an attack that, you know, would have killed him years earlier. So now Xerxes, this guy knows that this people are special people. And so he says, okay, Esther, you, you tell, what else do you need? All right, you got it. Okay, what else do you need? Okay. Because you remember the original edict. The original edict was for the destruction of the Jews in one day. That's what they had in the Jews' defense. Now they needed another day. By the way, because of that, I don't want to call it a discrepancy, but because of that, what we call a two-day campaign um, throughout history, uh, Jews have struggled with the proper observance of the Feast of Purim, is it a one-day event or is it a two-day event? Is it a, you know, what do we do with that? But I want you to notice too, and this is big. Verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75 of those who hated them. And underline this part. This is important. But they laid no hands on their plunder. All they did was defend themselves. But I'm not touching their stuff. The emphasis in the narrative on the, and by the way, it's, it's, and this is an emphasis the emphasis in the narrative here is on killing the enemies and not just winning the victory. Meaning that they had a different kind of scorecard. Their scorecard was one of defense only. And, and nothing is drawn to our attention in Scripture without a purpose. And, and this whole thing about laying no hands on their plunder was mentioned in more than one spot here. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, well, it certainly has a historical context. In other words, 
did the Jews not lay hands on their plunder because they already had enough stuff? No, I'd say no, that's, that's not what really it. Why was this a big issue? They have a historical precedent. And I want you to turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 14. <clears throat> Genesis 14. All right, so you're turning there. In Genesis 14, I'm giving you a thumbnail sketch, okay? I'm just trying to save us some time here, so I apologize for, you know, describing it as, you know, simply as, as I can here. You have two alliances of kings. They go to war. One alliance beats the other alliance. The alliance that was defeated included the king of Sodom. Only problem was, oh, Abraham had a family issue with the king of Sodom because somebody was over on that side. Do you remember who that was? Lot. So Abraham says, you know what? I'm going to do what I need to do, and I'm going to go to war. And Abraham won. In Genesis 14, we have a, a, an interesting dialogue right about verse 22. The king of Sodom says, because basically, you know, Abraham won the victory that Sodom lost. Sodom says, hey, I, I want to give you something. I got to reward you some way, but look at what happens in verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Adam rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and let the share of the men who went with me, let Asner Eshkol and Mamre take their share. This was a theological reason. Because even the Jews in their day, of, of Esther's day, remembered that exchange. It would have been taught to them. They would have learned about this as children. They laid no hands on the plunder because God is with us. He will supply us. Now you know why we have to be very careful as a geopolitical nation about invoking the name of God. You can't just pick God's name and just say, well, he's on our side. Without taking the whole nature and character of God with you. Israel said, or the Jews said here, we're going to abide by some theological rules. Because we have a historical precedent of a God who is bound and determined by covenant, by his word, to protect us and make us into a great nation. We will not do anything to jeopardize that standing or our standing with the Lord to the degree that someone else out in this planet can say, you know, no, 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 it wasn't God who did that. I did that because you took my plunder. Do you see what's happening here? So that's why this chapter is so unique. 
Because it is, it's a chapter that gives directives on warfare. Not just as a group of people, but it also helps us to know some things about being merciful to those who attack us and we have to stand our ground. Three things I want you to remember um, that this chapter teaches us, especially on a personal level. Rule number one is this. Battles are for the procurement of peace, not the pursuit of any form of wealth. That's really what a battle is all about. I, I don't, this statement is not original with me, and I don't know where I heard it from. You've probably heard this too. The statement is, sometimes there is a peace that can only be found on the other side of war. This is certainly the case in, uh, of the Jews here in Esther 9. My point here is this, whenever we have conflict with one another, it is not your goal or my goal to see who's going to get the upper hand. That's the pursuit of some form of wealth, even if it's psychological wealth. Our main objective is peace. Conflict resolution. Discipleship is based on a peace because the battle is over. We have no need to fight over the things the world fights for. In other words, Jesus fought the ultimate battle for us. We don't have to fight for the things like we would want to fight for anymore. Jews here were, all they knew was that there was an enemy who was bound and determined to destroy them on a particular time. And all they wanted to do, and all that Esther and her very wise leadership, all she wanted was for her people just to defend themselves. We don't want to get rich. We're not trying to conquer lands. We are not trying to overthrow the government. As a matter of fact, she was very pro her government, which was not even a Christian government. Now, that's a hard one to start deciphering. Esther was serving and submitted to a king who did not worship Yahweh. But she says, you know what? I I don't have to worry about that. Because God didn't call me to change them. God has called us to defend ourselves because we have a covenant relationship with him. Now, I'm not trying to stir the pot. But that does say something about how we can live under any form of government, no matter what it is. Okay? God had put them under under that government. Yes, he did. Uh, and it wasn't just them. It was Egypt. Oh, yeah. It was Syrian captivity. I mean, this was, this was stuff that, yeah, they, they were used to this stuff. They were used to this. 
And she said, you know what? That's, uh, that's going to be a battle for another day if it ever comes. We just need to live. Number two, the fighting of any battle must be worth the price it will require. The fighting of any battle must be worth the price it will require. On a personal level, you, listen, not everything is worth the drama and the conflict. Let it go. Let it go. I'm not going to sing this song, but... But let it go. Ken Sandy and his excellent resource, um, Peacemaker, uh, defines several criterion in which we as believers ought to get involved. Number one, when there is a, a, a serious uh, offense committed that you know, is hurting the name of God and the testimony of the Lord. When it's destroying a relationship, if it's destroying the testimony of the church. In other words, there's a lot of small things we can just overlook. And we should. But if we choose to confront that person, if we choose to you know, decide, well, we need to make a stand and be defensive, you need to weigh in the balance, will it be worth the price it will require? What if that person rejects you? What if that person leaves? There have been people that I have confronted. There have been circumstances that a pastor will find themselves in where they've got to speak to someone on a certain issue. And they say, well, I'm gone. I ain't got to stand here and listen to this. Okay. You have to ask yourself, is it worth the price? Your testimony at stake. You will be remembered as a troublemaker, a peacemaker. You'll be remembered as a gossip or godly. And let's, let's just make this very, let's just make this very convicting for us right now. You already have one of those labels on you. Okay. You only have to be a part of the body of Christ for just a few months for people to have a kind of label on you. We must guard our hearts. We must guard our testimony and help one another to do the same. And number three, what victories God grants should be celebrated. Just as Israel celebrated the defense and the destruction of their enemy, they made a feast out of it. Listen, anytime a conflict is settled, you need to celebrate. You need to take that person with whom was once your enemy, and y'all need to join hands together and shout it on the rooftops. The Lord brought us through this. The, 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 you know, that, that, you know, there's water under the bridge. It's done. It's settled. There's peace between us now. That needs to be shouted because other people need to see that example. When we follow the Lord, even in settling a dispute, we must not forget to praise him for allowing the victory and being glorified through his people. That's ultimately what's happening. This text would preach for a long, long time. And there are more truths that you can mine out of this very easily. But our time is at an end. And I'm already past time. So, therefore, we're going to go ahead and, 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 and cut it. I hope it's been profitable for you. I hope I have raised some questions and challenged you maybe, but definitely encouraged you. And, uh, take, and we'll all take to heart. Uh, the, the scriptures tonight uh, into how we live for the Lord and how we live towards one another. Let's stand.
Thank you for listening to this podcast from the First Baptist Church of Boulogne in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcboulogne.org.